Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. And with me for the reading of the Word and then for prayer, and we'll get into our study. We're in Ephesians chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 3. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Let's pray. Dear Lord, it's an overwhelming responsibility to stand before you and, and your people to expound your word. Please help me, for I can do nothing without you. Guide my thoughts, please, in my every word, that your people may be encouraged and may be strengthened for their walk with you. May you deal with the heart of anyone who is here who doesn't know you and May they pass from life to death, from death to life, before this day is over. For your glory and in your name's sake. Amen. Let us, uh, well, you may be seated. Let's, today we begin a, a new chapter in our study in the book of Ephesians. And, and as I promised, uh, I'll begin uh, each session with an accolade from the Scotsman John McKee, who later became president of Princeton Theological Seminary when he said, and he said that the book of Ephesians is the distilled essence of the Christian faith, truth that sings and doctrine set to music, and which Charles Spurgeon called a complete body of divinity. In chapter 1, we saw an outline of, of God's plan of salvation. And the chapter concluded with Paul's prayer that we may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us that he ultimately demonstrated to us in the resurrection of Jesus whom he seated at his right hand and put all things under his feet. And now in chapter 2, God has further demonstrated that power by raising us as well from spiritual death and placing our lives securely in Jesus in heavenly places. Verse 1, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. Now, You'll notice the words he made alive are in italics. 
Possibly in your version of the Bible, they're not even there. That's because they were not in the original Greek. They were added just for ease of reading by translators. Paul's going to get into that a little bit later on, the being made alive part. But right now, we're going to look at who were dead in trespasses and sins. You know, saint and sinner alike, we all know that there's something wrong with the human race. We're not perfect. Some of us seem to be a little bit more perfect than others. Some a little bit more flawed than others. Sometimes we recognize the flaws in others before we will admit the flaws in ourselves. But we know that we're not perfect. And there's three possibilities. First is that mankind is basically okay. You know, we have a few problems, but, you know, basically we're, we're all right. Back in the, I think it was the late 60s, early 70s, a fellow wrote a book called I'm Okay, You're Okay. Self-help book, you know, just to kind of show us that, you know, maybe we have some problems, but we're not so bad, you know. Well, unfortunately, the fellow who wrote the book committed suicide, which led somebody else to write another book, uh, I'm Okay, But Evidently You're Not. Um, no, I'm just kidding. That was. <laughs> I don't think anybody did that. But that is one of the favorite outlooks of the world, is that mankind is basically okay. The second option is that man is sick. Well, yeah, we have lots of problems. But if we're just sick then that means that there's life, and where there's life, there's hope. You know, So maybe we can overcome our problems. Maybe we can actually pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and make ourselves better. Do you know when I look at the history of mankind, you know, and I see all the evil that happened back in, you know, throughout history, wars and and genocide and you know just all the terrible things that man has done to man you'd think if we could do anything about it we would have already done it but we still have wars we still have genocide we have just become more proficient at doing the evil that we have done so mankind I think has a worse problem than being sick. The third option is that man is dead. And that's Paul's diagnosis in this verse. And you who were dead. Now what does he mean by dead? Well dead essentially means dead. Now Paul is obviously describing the human condition of everyone because he begins this passage with you. He's talking to the church at Ephesus. He's also, we think, talking to the church at Laodicea and ultimately to Christians everywhere. everywhere. But in verse 3, he moves to we. 
And here he's speaking primarily of himself and his Jewish brethren. But he finishes this verse with the rest of mankind. And so this diagnosis is universal. And this death is not a figure of speech. Like, say, in the the parable of the prodigal son, where the father says, My son who was dead is now alive. This dead means dead. But how come it is then that we can be dead when we seem to be so alive? Well, and here again, some of us seem to be more alive than others, but you know, everybody who's walking around today seems to be alive. Well, you know, he's talking about a spiritual death. In Genesis 2 and 7, God said to Adam, you know, of all the trees in the garden you can eat except this one tree in the midst of the garden. Don't eat of that tree because in the day that you do, you will surely die. Well, Adam ate. Adam died. But you know, Adam died physically at the age of 930 years which was more than 800 years after he ate of the tree. And I say more than 800 years because he was 130 when he had Seth. Seth was their third child, and we don't know the time difference between, you know, when Abel and Cain were born and then when Seth was born. So, he was it was much more than 900 i mean much more than 800 years after he ate of the tree that he actually physically died and god said in the day that you eat you will die well he did die that day he died spiritually and that is evidenced by the fact that he hid himself from god just as mankind today want to hide themselves from God. And David reinforces this fact here in, in Psalms 51, where he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. So, what Paul is saying in these first three verses in Ephesus. Ephesus 2 is what he said in the first three chapters of Romans, that we are all spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. One commentator said the most vital part of man's personality, the spirit, is dead to the most important factor in life, and that is God. Spurgeon said, not in a moral sense, nor in a mental sense, but in a spiritual sense, Poor humanity is dead. And so the word of God again and again positively describes it. And James Montgomery Boyce puts it this way. Like a spiritual corpse, a sinner is unable to make a single move toward God or even correctly respond to God unless God gives him the ability. The question has been debated over and over you know, throughout the history of the church. 
just how dead is mankind? Is man still free to choose God even in a dead condition? Or is he unable to choose God at all since dead people are not very well known for making choices? You know, some have said and still say today that man is not completely fallen and still retains enough of spiritual life within him to make a choice. But such assumptions have been uh, deemed heretical because according to Paul, man isn't just mostly dead. He is completely dead. So dead that even Miracle Max can't help him. Now, there's two prevailing views on, on what God can do in man's condition. First, there is the view that the Armenian theology view of free will. This was the view of uh, Jacobus Arminius and it was further uh, developed by John Wesley. These affirm the total depravity of man. That is that man is completely fallen. When man fell he fell completely away from die, from God and died completely spiritually. They affirm that salvation is by grace alone, through God alone, and that God has to draw the person to himself, but that God intervenes with the person's spirit by means of preventing grace. And that is, God, or God intervenes into the part of the person that is still alive, and that is the will. Even though we are spiritually dead, our will still lives, just as we live physically. And so through the will, God gives man the option. Choose me, or choose death. The new birth follows acceptance of God's offer of salvation. How does that work? <clears throat> the Puritan writer John Trapp wrote, Howbeit, the natural man, though he be theologically dead, yet is ethically alive, capable to be wrought upon by arguments, such as that found in Hosea, I drew them by the cords of man, that is, by reason and motives of love befitting man's nature. So the Spirit and the Word work upon us still as men by rational motives setting before us life and good, death and evil. And that is to say that even though man is spiritually dead, his will is very much alive. Jonathan Edwards, perhaps the best known and one of the greatest Puritan preachers and writers says it quite clearly like this. The problem is not with the will itself, since the will is simply the mind choosing what it deems best. The problem is with man's moral nature, which is opposed to God, and with the sinful motives that flow out of that corrupt nature. Edwards declares that the will is always free 
And we always choose what we judged best in any given situation. But as sinners, we always judge wrongly. We think God undesirable. And like Adam, we hide from him. Therefore, we always resist God and reject the Bible, or reject the gospel. God then, by his word and spirit, comes to man by the part of him that's still living. Man then has the ability to exercise his free will and reject or accept the gospel. If we accept, we can become born again. Our spirit comes to life and we are fully complete living creatures. Reject and we remain spiritually dead. The other viewpoint is the Reformed theology viewpoint or the sovereignty of God which was uh, the viewpoint of Luther, Zwingli, Calvin and the other reformers who also affirmed total depravity and the fact of original sin that is we are all born into sin from Adam that salvation is by God alone but they said that God first has to bring the person to life spiritually and thus the new birth precedes acceptance of the gospel but that in fact God makes an offer the man cannot refuse and doesn't refuse. The problem with this viewpoint is that it is only the elect who are given this offer And the problem I have with that is that it seems like an insincere offer if he doesn't offer it to everybody. Whichever way you want to look at it, the point is that we were spiritually dead. Those who haven't accepted him are spiritually dead. But if we were spiritually dead... That's great news, isn't it, that we are alive now. If we haven't accepted him, then we are still spiritually dead. But you know, there's something even worse than being dead. That's kind of hard to imagine. You know, what could be worse than being dead? Well, first of all, unregenerated man is under bondage and subject to God's wrath. We were under bondage and subject to God's wrath. Unregenerated man still is under bondage and subject to God's wrath. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So Paul says that we are in bondage, first to the world, secondly to the devil, and thirdly to the flesh. 
And when he says, in which you once walked, that means, that means how we once lived. We once walked under the influence of the world. The world system is all that we knew. And because of this, and because we were walking with the world, we were walking with the sons of disobedience. And we were one of the sons of disobedience. Well, let me say here now, to kind of clarify things. You know, the picture that Paul seems to be painting and the picture that most commentators paint when they <coughs> talk about the sin that we walked in, the sin that we lived in, the sin that the ungenerated man, regenerated man, is still living in, it sounds very bleak and very... I mean, it sounds like we're all, you know, Charles Manson's and Jeffrey Dahmer's and and Attila the Hun and you know all these you know awful awful people you know the fact is most of us seem to be rather nice folks I'm not talking about us in this congregation I'm talking about mankind in general I mean if we weren't everybody would have wiped everybody else out by this time you know we all seem to be pretty good citizens moral people Loving, compassionate, but dead. And you know, that is one of the things that, that makes it so hard for mankind to, to want to accept the gospel. Because we are pretty much good people. I'm talking about mankind in general. But you know, Satan likes good people. You know, it's the Jeffrey Dahmers and the the Hitlers and and you know the Charles Mansons that give him kind of a bad name. It's the good people, even people who show up on church on Sunday morning. But who forget about him and go about living what we think of as a good responsible moral life through the the rest of the week these are the people that he likes because they are in bondage to him just as much as the most vile murderer rapist whoever whatever you know that we find because if we are not serving the lord if we are not alive to the to god and essentially in bondage to him we are in bondage to Satan. Because like Bob Dylan said, you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. There is really no other choice. We are either alive to God or we are dead to Him. And if we are dead to Him, we are serving the devil. But we are also in bondage to the flesh. The flesh I'm talking about is not skin. It is our natural fallen desires. You know, and much of our sin comes from our bondage to the flesh. The devil gets a lot of credit for it, but we, we do it ourselves. We are so oftentimes our own worst enemy. I've quoted Pogo Possum in here several times. 
you know, his comic strip where he says, we have met the enemy and he is us. We are oftentimes our own worst enemy because we are in bondage to our flesh and to our fleshly desires. But we still had a worse problem than that. We were by nature children of wrath. We don't particularly like to hear that. And here again, I'm not talking about us. I'm talking about mankind in general. You know, in our society today, the wrath of God is something that we just don't talk about. Even in most churches, we don't talk about. They say, how can you seriously talk about the wrath of God when we should be talking about the love of God? We know the idea of the wrath of God is somewhere in the Bible, maybe a few obscure passages, but it's something Christians today really shouldn't be talking about. We should be talking about the love of God. God is love. God understands He knows that we're only human. God forgives. Actually, isn't he our heavenly father for all of us? No. He is our common creator, but he is not our common father. Jesus told the Pharisees that they were of their father, the devil. If... God is our Father, then we have come to life in Him. If He is not our Father, we are under His wrath. And as Hebrews 10 tells us, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of living God. God's wrath is not as man's wrath. You know, we get mad... We get over it. We get mad sometimes at the wrong things. We don't get mad at the right things. We're not not consistent in our wrath always, nor is it controlled, nor is it always just. But God's wrath is consistent. He is always angry with sin. He is always going to punish sin. But his wrath is also controlled. You know, we get mad and lash out. When God is angry with us for our sin, if if we are unbelievers, we can be assured that the wrath of God is going to fall upon us. If we are his children, if we are believers then we can look forward to his chastisement and in his correction. But he doesn't do like mankind and just lash out. And Otherwise, he would have squashed us out a long time ago. And thirdly, his wrath is just. If we are under his wrath, it is because... We deserve it. We deserve it because we have rejected Him. We deserve it because we wouldn't accept His offer of salvation.
But if we are his, we don't have to worry about his wrath. Paul told us in in 1 Thessalonians that God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, to the believer, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, is really good news. It describes how we were. To the unbeliever, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 can be very bad news because it describes how they are. But it also gives them the opportunity to become one of the ones to whom it is good news how, how you were and how we used to walk. Now next time that we get into Ephesians we're going to get into the better part. The part that begins with the words but God. always like it when I see but God in the Bible. I counted the other day 26 times in the New Testament the words but God appear together. And 24 of those 26 times the situation changes from bad to good every time we see but God. Only twice does he pronounce judgment. So next time it's going to be but God and the good part. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you have seen fit to call us from death to life to bring us to you and to make us your own and to give us these wonderful promises that you have made to us that we found in the the first chapter of this book. Let us take these promises to heart and live as living people, Lord, alive to you for good works and to do your will and to build up your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.